we're Oxfords, not rogues. We are the Spyfy Guys, and this is The King's Man. Welcome to the Spyfy Guys, where we cover spy facts, spy fiction, and everything in between. I'm Christian. And I'm Zach. And today we have another Dead Drop episode for you, this time for the Kingsman prequel, The King's Man. That's right. I really quite enjoyed the first Kingsman movie. Mm -hmm. I think most people did. The second one I thought was pretty good. We can save our opinions on those for when we cover them eventually. Mm -hmm. But this is a prequel. This is set, unlike the others, which are set in present day. This one begins in 1902 and then goes into about 1918 or so. And as such, it has an almost entirely new cast of characters. No Colin Firth, no Taron Egerton, Mm -hmm. no Mark Strong. No, shame. To be fair, though, this has got quite a stacked cast. When I like watch it, I was like, wait. This guy is that also to be fair though, a lot of the more recognizable faces are covered in ginormous beards. This movie did have a lot of beards, it's true. So, shall we get into it? Yeah, here's the IMDb plot summary. In the early years of the 20th century, the Kingsman Agency is formed to stand against a cabal plotting a war to wipe out millions. Yeah, so we've got our main character played by Ray Fiennes, who is apparently his name's Orlando. Did you know that? His character's name, they just called him Oxford. So I yeah, just they called him, him Oxford, Oxford. Or, the, or the Duke of Oxford. Yeah, but apparently his name's Orlando. I had no idea. I don't like it's probably mentioned once in the movie. So we get a like a, sh- a short scene of the Duke and his wife and their young son Conrad visiting a concentration camp in South Africa in which he's there to visit. Who is that guy? What's what's that guy's name? I always forget his name, Charles Dance. It's- it's like Lord Winchester or something like that. It is. Kitchener. Oh, yeah, Lord so, Kitchener. So this was interesting. They even call it a concentration camp in the movie. Yep. And this was before concentration camp became synonymous with the Holocaust. Right. There was a time when it just meant you concentrate people in one location and that was it. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about the Boer War. I did not I look it up for either. this. <laughs> I was actually wondering, like, what war would this have been after? But I guess, yeah. So apparently the Boer War. That's right. Um, but yeah, so there's a confrontation. There's a, like a shoot around the fields. I was almost sure that the wife was going to die. Like the mother was going to die. I was like, all right, when is she biting it? Yep, here comes the fridge. It's back. <laughs> Even in 2021, we can't escape that. Yeah. And on her be- deathbed, she like makes uh, the Duke promise that... I wasn't clear. Was it promised that your son will never be in a war or your son will never see a war? Well, only one of those things he can actually fulfill. <laughs> true, true. He can't promise that the sun will never see war. <laughs> only the dead have seen the end of war. Uh, anyway, so we cut, flash forward to 12 years later. We meet a grown up, well, 17 or 18 year old Conrad. Who <laughs> yeah, looks like and he looked. He's in his mid 20. Yeah, he looked like he was 25. And then when they kept saying, no, you can't go to war, you're too young, it did not work. Uh, how old was this actor actually? It's not uncommon for actors, of course, to be older than the characters they're playing. Right. But still. Let's see. Harris Dickinson is 25. Yep. That's about right. Dude, he, he did look young, but not young enough to be like 17 or 18. Here we get more of the Duke protecting him. Yeah. The first half of this movie did not work for me. Okay. Just, interesting. It, All right. It did. It did the very tedious thing of repeating conversations over and over again. Ah, yes. Like in Munich. Pet peeve. <laughs> yeah. So the son is like, I want to go to war. And the dad says, you can't go to war. And they have that conversation like five times. 
eh, it worked for me. I didn't notice it as much because I was caught up in all of the other things that are going on. So we meet the household staff who are mostly unimportant except for Shola, who is one of the manservants, I guess. I thought he he's was a, like a butler. Butler, driver, driver. I think he's a, he's a he's a jack of all trades for the Duke, who's played by that guy. Yeah, the perennial that guy. Was he oh, yeah. the one? Jimon, in... Jimon Hansu. Yeah, was he, he the is... who guy in Guardians of the Galaxy? He is. He Shazam in Shazam. Mm, the so wizard Shazam, go. actually. Uh, he's right. in many, many things. Uh, but also we have Polly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Played by Gemma Archerton, who was a Bond girl in Quantum of Solace, who is like one of the housemaids. So we meet them, and they are into something with the Duke. We're not exactly sure what. But we also get a really cool mock knife fight between Conrad and Shola, where like they put like chalk on these like wooden knives, I guess you would call them, doing a knife fight. And like, you know, you're trying to, mar- it's a way to practice your knife skills without actually using a real knife. What is it with all the knife fights in this movie? It's 1917 or 18, so there are guns, but you still had people practicing how to use bayonets, so bladed weaponry was still a big thing. They did. They also used cavalry swords in World War One. Mm-hmm. There were just a lot. I like the gun kata in the first uh, couple movies a lot more. As a former fencer, someone who studied a little bit of stage sword fighting, as well as a little bit of like uh, Escrima, which is actually based on actual like Filipino bladed, I loved all the blade work in this movie. Like right. it worked for me, and I I was appreciated because I could see techniques that I recognized. It was good. So we still have that. We also have they meet up. Well, first of all, we go to the Kingsman shop, the tailor shop. There they meet up with Kitchener again. And Kitchener is uh, accompanied by, what's his name? Morton, played by right. Matthew Good. A reunion, or look into the future since it has not come out yet, to uh, the Imitation Game. Because both Kitchener, <laughs> both Matthew Good and, uh, what's his face, Charles Dance, working together yet again in the British Intelligence Service. Yeah, you could almost argue it's the same character. <laughs> um, Charles Dances definitely seemed like it was the same character. Um, what, what was his name? Dennison. Andrew, Justice for uh, Dennison. Andrew, oh, wait, the episode hasn't come out this yet. This will make no sense <laughs> unless you listen to this again after <laughs> Imitation right. Game comes out. Yeah. I also feel like Charles Danson counts since he's in every British movie. <laughs> I mean, like I said, this has like a, a cavalcade of, you know, every British actor almost. Mm-hmm. find out that there's something suspicious going on with the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which of course is like, oh, oh, I see. I know where we're going. Well, sure. It's the only thing anybody ever knows about him is how he died and what it meant for the world. Yeah. So Conrad keeps, again, like you said, you, okay, yes, he does say it a bunch of times, but you know what? I, I took that more as a character trait than the movie really hammering it in because that is his sole objective and that 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 is his thing he wants to fight he wants to go to the front he wants to serve his country well it's his want and his father has a little bit of mixed messaging about it so his father talks a lot about how they're privileged they're wealthy they have power so Mm -hmm. they need to use it Mm -hmm. to give back and certainly the people of this age would feel that the best way to give back to your country is by fighting. <laughs> yeah. Well, and certainly that was a criticism people had here in the United States of like the Vietnam War, right? That it was mm-hmm. a poor person's war and mm-hmm. that the rich people didn't fight in it. So I understand kind of where the sun is coming from. Also, mm-hmm. this reminds me of someone that I knew in high school who shall remain oh nameless, who 
his family was wealthy, but he became an army ranger because okay. he, so for a lot of people, joining the military is a way of getting out of this one horse town, as Bruce Springsteen right. might say. But for him, he saw it as like an honorable military tradition for the wealthy. So getting back to Conrad, mm -hmm. his want is to be in the military, but his mm -hmm. need is to like matter, do something that matters and not just be yeah. like a privileged little rich boy his whole life. Yeah. And he's totally being coddled by his dad big time. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so, but even though he's not allowed to join up, he is allowed to come with his father to go to Sarajevo and to, to meet with the Archduke. And so next we see them like driving on the street and okay, so I was a little rusty on my World War One history or you know pre-World mm -hmm. War One history. So when we get someone like throwing a bomb at the car, Conrad knocks it away with his either his, umbre his umbrella. I was mm -hmm. like, did we just change history and avert World War One? That and would have certainly made the movie much more interesting if they had. <laughs> but I looked it up later, and maybe I don't know if you have this in fact versus fiction. But yeah, that it is true that the first bomber missed and actually hit the car behind them. I didn't realize that detail. I did know that the first attempt failed, and then later in the movie, Gavrilo Precep did see the Archduke just driving down the road and took advantage just, of the opportunity yep. to kill him. So I was so, impressed that they did that in the movie. Mm -hmm, they kind of yeah. cut a corner. Mm -hmm. So Princip is part of what is called the flock. It's basically Spectre for World War One, which and including a bald, mostly unseen villain and shot like Ernst Stavro Blofeld was, where he's mostly either in shadow or shot from behind. And so you just have this whole cabal of basically history, you know, World War One or the, that era's villains. We have Rasputin. We've got who was the other guy? Matahari. Oh yeah, Matahari. We had Baron Zemo. Baron Zemo, right? <laughs> whose uh, character is Eric Jan Hunnison. and of course Princep, as we discussed yeah, before. And yeah, and so, all of them, like just like Spectre, they all have rings, right? And but their rings actually have different animals, and then the shepherd who's in charge of everything has a shepherd's crook on his, and all of the rings also have poison inside them for you know if they fail that's what they're supposed to do yeah these supervillains love their branding so <laughs> a couple things about this villain yeah the kingsman movies yeah were known for their very flamboyant villains so here we're just gonna let's just talk about this right now this movie is very different than the other ones and i'm okay mm -hmm. with it because it's set in an entirely different era like it does not have all of the ridiculousness like the heads exploding in the end of kingsman one or the meat grinder in Kingsman 2. This doesn't have as much of that because it's set in an actual historical time and I was okay with it. Like, I knew uh, it was going to be different going in, so I was not expecting all of that specific flair. The first trailer just showed World War One action, which sounded appealing to me, and then yeah. the second trailer showed a lot of the historical figures. Rasputin, Matahari, Filippo Precep, or however you say it. Gavrilo. So, I liked that because it reminded me of Legends of Tomorrow, where we had our <laughs> heroes right. getting around history. And I mentioned it to our friend Rob, our movie friend, and he said, yeah, that reminded me of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> I didn't think Conrad. about it, but now I, now that I do, I can see it. But it's done in a more subtle way than well, LXD sure. was. Anything would be more subtle than League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but the perils definitely jump out. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, like you said, Princip actually gets a shot 
when he's just, you know, driving around the corner, shoots the Archduke in the neck and his wife in the stomach. But he is taken alive. Oh. I mean, so then basically the war starts and then the members of the flock push their various leaders into fighting. And I liked how they talked about the relationship between King George, the Kaiser and, and the czar and the czar. I thought that I was did really not realize they were all cousins. I did not realize that either. But then I realized, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds familiar. So all of these guys were played by the same actor, Tom Hollander. Oh, I didn't realize that. I mean, just with different facial hair, con- you know, configurations and mm. different accents. I like the lampooning of all of these world leaders, mm-hmm. especially Woodrow Wilson, because that guy sucks. <laughs> and that is something that's consistent with the previous Kingsman movies, because I seem to remember that the especially the first one had a sardonic attitude towards government and politicians and leaders. I mean, they all did. They basically said like that is part of their creed is. They're an independent intelligence agency above the squabbles of politicians. Yeah, someone might also say above accountability. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it because I have questions about the end, but we'll get there. Mm. We have Rasputin, who is trying to get Russia out of the war. So he like poisons the young, uh, I don't know, what would you call a Tsar's son? I don't know. The uh, prince, prince? I could call him a yeah. princeling. Sure, let's say the princeling and Mm -hmm. tells Tsar Nicholas and his wife that, you know, this is a sign that you have to, you know, pull out of the war or or your your son's life was forfeit. That had some precedent in history. I remember Mm -hmm. reading about how Rasputin was perceived to be the only one who could, like, take care of the Tsar's kid. Obviously, I don't think he leveraged it to get them out of the war. Yeah, well. That seems to have been made up by the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Conrad is told by one of his, his Russian cousin, whose name is Felix Yusupov, that mm-hmm. uh, Rasputin is trying to manipulate them to leave the war. Conrad delivers this information to Kitchener and to uh, Major Morton at Kingsman Taylor. I don't think we've seen this, the pattern room before that they're in. I don't have a really strong memory of the first two. Like I remember most of the highlights, uh, but I'm not okay. going to remember stuff like this setting. Okay, well, I, I have a pretty good memory. So... The actual Kingsman Taylor shop, which I did visit in London. Well, it's not Kingsman, though, but it's hmm. uh, I forget what it is. But I have photos of it, but they do have like a little Kingsman logo on the window, but looks pretty much exactly as it does in the first two movies. So seemingly time has not touched the Taylor shop since, you know, the 1900s. That's good. But the Oxford Manor that we see in this movie, we later see in the present day as, you know, the Kingsman headquarters. Mm hmm. Conrad delivers that information to Morton and Kitchener. They sail off to Russia in a boat, which, of course, gets hit by a, a missile and or a to- torpedo. And I didn't really think it was like, wait. Oh, yeah, submarines were around in World War One already, weren't they? I suppose they were. Technically, they existed as far back as the American Civil War. But again, this felt like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where you had the bad guy with his cutting edge <laughs> technology for the time and his cackling laugh. Yeah, all right, fine. <laughs> I will say that the part where they shoot and blow up the ship, it looked really yeah. good. Like, the yeah. effect looked really good. Mm-hmm. Word of Kitchener's death reaches Duke and Conrad. And so they decide, all right, we need to actually head off. And is this where we get the big emotional scene where the Duke actually lets Conrad in? He lets him be part of the mission. Yeah. I didn't understand why Conrad came, because he has no military experience at all. He has a very specific role. I'm aware of that. 
but still, like they they couldn't find anybody else. But then I thought about it, and then I it occurs to me maybe it's like a social commentary, like what uh-huh. they were saying before about how we're privileged. Yeah, Conrad gets to go because he's the leader's son. Yeah. whether he's supposed to be there or not, or whether he's the best person for the job or not. And not to give things away, but I felt like it would have been much better if it had gotten him killed. Think about Interesting. it. Interesting. No, I I think that would not have as, as much emotional impact there. So the scene I was talking about, though, is where basically he's, they both learn about Kitchener's death and they're in like this, the dining room. Conrad is just going off on his father and we need to do something. You know, this, I don't care what you're thinking, but the whole time the Duke's like in his head, like calculating, all right, what do we need to do? Oh, right. And, and yes, um, I apologize. You're right. Come with me and takes him into his seek, you know, his moving bookshelf where they see all of the intelligence that's been gathered by Shola and Polly. And this is, I like this idea. Their whole intelligence network is by, is from servants. Yeah, because apparently nobody else thought to use them. Mm-hmm. It's stupid. <laughs> no, it's not. It's a great. It's a great. Uh, I mean, literally, no one in that era, no one would think anything of a servant. You know, just being right there. Mm, they use servants for spies all the way back, as in Game of Thrones. And I know Game of Thrones isn't history. Is not history. Yes. So why did you not think it was stupid there? No, I'm saying a servant is an obvious choice for a spy. Oh. They were using it uh, in Munich, too. Do you remember talking about that in the Munich Microdot, where uh, they would pay off people right. who worked at, like, bus stations and airports just to tell them what was going on? Yeah. I so, mean, like, it would what, be... What's your problem with it? My problem with it is when they say, oh, no one's ever thought of this. We're the only ones to do it. It's like, maybe they, if they did it okay. better than everyone else. They don't say we're the only ones to do it. Maybe, uh, maybe not it. so many words. <laughs> yeah. But... Or at least no one else. If they if they're trying to do it, they're not being as successful. It's not the fact that they have that the only ones doing it. It's that their network is so widespread that they can get it, you know, right into the Tsar's palace. Yeah, I guess that probably could have been spelled out a little bit better. It was pretty clear when you see all of the p- print points and photos of everything. No, I, I I meant it's clear that they're really spread out. I just uh, forget it. This is a silly argument. <laughs> then there's so many other better things to have an argument about. All right. They go to Russia and they have a party at Cousin's house. They meet Rasputin. So the whole plan is Conrad is going to lure Rasputin because Rasputin has a predilection for young boys. So he's going to lure him to get into a side room to eat this cake that Polly is going to make, which has cyanide in it. Mm-hmm. And they're going to kill him that way. And that way, if he's dead, then they he can't draw Russia out of the war. But this doesn't quite work because... Because it seems Rasputin, like it doesn't affect him. Well, not just that. Rasputin also doesn't take the line from Conrad and knows something's up already. Oh, yeah, that's true. But he did, he is willing to go off alone with Oxford. The Duke, yeah. Yeah. And heals the Duke's leg in a weird, really weird scene. Hey, he's a mystical healer. I didn't have a problem with that. <laughs> I didn't I didn't actually have a problem. It was just like him like licking the wound and all that sort of stuff was just a little... I thought it was like Tai Chi more than that. Like, no like tai pressure chi points. I know of <laughs> involves licking a point. Uh, well, not the... the licking is like extra, but I meant like he's like touching the leg and all that jazz. He heals the Duke's leg and eats like half of the cake mm-hmm. and seemingly like enchanting the Duke to get him to tell the truth about yes. why he's really here. And 
as the Duke's about to reveal that he's there to poison him or to kill him, Rasputin like vomits a whole bunch. Yeah, it's like the cartoon projectile vomiting. You sometimes see in TV. It's very, it's always sunny in Philadelphia kind of humor. Yeah, Rasputin actually drinks a little bit of poison every day to build up immunity, just like the Dread Pirate Roberts. That's right. <laughs> Tries to drown the Duke in this icy water that's right outside. And the whole time, Conrad and Shola are listening at the door, waiting for you know, to see if the plan worked. They burst in. Rasputin and Shola have this magnificent fight, which I loved. Like, Rasputin's using, like, Russian ballet dance fighting. Yeah, the Russian kicks, like, from the ABBA song. Or, I don't know. Wh- wh- who's the band that does Ra Ra Rasputin? It's M-Boni? not ABBA. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, so finally, how far does into the movie is this? Like a ha- half the movie, a third no. of the movie? I think it's like at least a third of the movie before we finally get our first good fight scene. We had a brief moment of like, we see, like there was a flashback of uh, Oxford fighting. Yes, more like murdering. Was, well, yeah, but it was in like, fir- it was like in first person shooter mode, which right. reminded me of like stuff from the first Kingsman. So I was like, oh, there's that little flare of that, but it like, but with bl- with a sword and with blades. Yeah. So this fight was really good. Yeah, it, I like. There's a little bit of a horror movie where they think they've killed him and then he comes oh, back. God, yeah. Just like in the legend. <laughs> they think they drowned him, but nope. And then finally, when he's shot in the head by Polly, he's finally dead. Yeah, and then Polly says the line that was in all the trailers: something about boys always make such a mess. I call Polly hashtag girl boss. <laughs> hey, I like Polly. Well, of course, she's so hyper competent in everything. Oh, boy, don't. We're, no, no, like? We are not going down this road. Don't 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 do it. OK, don't do it. I'm going to I will go off on. No, don't don't even start. Actually, that's true of all, all the characters, not just her. I mean, that is kind of their point is that they're so good. That's what the Kingsman movies are, is like legendary badasses just mowing down everybody who stands in their way. Mm-hmm. When Rasputin dies. We get another scene where the shepherd who's ordering uh, Eric Jan Hunnison. Baron um, Zemo. Baron Zemo, yeah. <laughs> who's an advisor to the Kaiser to uh, send the Zimmerman telegram. Mm-hmm. More about it in Spy Fact versus Fiction. Yeah. What was in the telegram, though? I'm trying to remember. Was it just saying that. It was saying that they were trying to get Mexico to declare war on the That's United right. States. Yes, yes. To make sure that the United States would not enter the war or would be too distracted by other things that they couldn't enter the war. Mm-hmm. And so I like the scene where Polly is actually like, tr- she gets hold of it and is trying to decode and try to figure out. But she, what she, she's having a lot of issues, but once she gets a few bits and pieces of it decoded with the help of another servant who is in the, uh, in the Kaiser's abode, she solves it. They send it off to Washington. But of course, Woodrow Wilson refuses to join the war because he doesn't believe it. He says, I need hard evidence. Doesn't he also promised to keep the U.S. out of war? Not I think in that was movie. one of his things. Not in the movie, but in real life. Yeah, well, yes. But in the movie here, we, mm. we don't know that information. Also, once Rasputin dies, the shepherd recruits Vladimir Lenin to start his revolution as soon as possible to make sure that Russia gets out of the war. I thought this was really good. I thought really liked that part, actually. It definitely seemed like the kind of thing supervillains would come up with. And it's not just because communism is terrible. It's also because it was really very convenient for Germany that Russia had an internal revolution that caused them to pull out. Mm -hmm. Very convenient indeed. 
<laughs> on the train ride back from Russia, we find that it also happens to be Conrad's birthday. He's now 19. He's able to join up, you know, without his parent or his father's permission. But he still wants his father's blessing. But mm-hmm. the Duke refuses to give it. Yeah, so he, that's his need. He wants to join the military. He needs his father to respect him. But he decides he's going to join up anyways. He is uh, put into the Grenadier Guards. Which is just where he wanted to go. He mentioned mm-hmm. that earlier. Yeah. There's a general who says he can pull some strings to get him out of fighting. Not just right? a general. That's King George. Oh, yeah. King George. Even better. <laughs> and that yeah. reminds me of a story. Well, well, actually, before we get to the story, it's also, again, the theme of like he's privileged. He's got connections. And they're always like, out for him. So that, that comes back. So the story is, there's a book called They Marched Into Sunlight, which is about a battle in Vietnam contrasting with a protest against the Vietnam War. There's a story from it where a general gets a letter from a mother. And she says, General, my son is in the military. He is serving as the front point man of a squad. So it's really dangerous. He goes into the jungle and then he got wounded in battle. He was in the hospital for six months and they, they're putting him back. They wanted to be the point man again. He, I know he's going to get killed. I just know it. Please, is there anything you can do to get him off the line? Okay. So the general writes back to her and he says, ma'am, your son is a cook. He's never been in battle. He's never had anyone shoot at him. <laughs> oh, please do not write me again. Oh, was there any more to the story? That, that's that the, the story. That's, that's what it well, reminded me of. I thought it was going to take a dark turn where, oh, and then he actually ended up going to the front and died. Oh, no. I'm presuming that if they made him a cook, they made him a cook for a reason. I don't know. It could be like, uh, what's his face from Pearl Harbor? And he just needed his chance to prove his worth. Possibly. Anyways, so back to this movie. Yeah, so King George pulls some strings and Conrad is told that once he reports for duty, he and like is even in his whole uniform and all and on the front lines, basically, and is told, nope, report back to London, you're, you're on desk duty. But before he goes back, he goes and sees a uh, young Lance Corporal from the Black Watch named yes. Archie Reed. The Black Watch is, is from Scotland, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of songs about them. And I assume that's also where the, uh, the tartan of the Black Watch plaid is from? I believe so, yes. Yeah. He trades places with Conrad, and sends uh, Archie Reed back to London in his uniform while he takes takes on Archie Reed's persona in the full kilt and everything. Yep. Is sent to the front lines and into the trenches and volunteers for this mission to see... Well, so there's a, there's a German soldier who's crossing Nomad's Land waving a Union Jack. It's not a Union and, Jack. Oh, I was waiting for someone to make this correction in the movie. According to an episode of Doctor Who, a Union Jack is only when it's on a ship. All right. (laughs) Otherwise, it's called a Union Flag. A Union Flag, excuse me. (laughs) They made the mistake in the movie, too, Mm -hmm. so don't feel bad about it. I don't feel bad about it. I feel bad about you. (laughs) That's fine. Uh, But yes, he's waving the Union Flag. Mm -hmm. Almost gets across, but then is hit by some artillery. Mm Mm-hmm. Archie, or rather, Conrad disguises Archie, volunteers to go in with one of the uh, higher-ups and four other men to go and retrieve his body because apparently this guy was actually a British spy. That's right. And the other five guys are voluntold to do it. (laughs) Or four guys, yeah. 
which is great. But all I have to say is, Conrad, don't be a hero. Don't be a fool with your life. Uh, he's a young man who's got patri- you know, lofty ideals about patriotism and serving one's country. Yep, that's right. They go out in the in the middle of the night when it's pitch black, moving very quietly. And I really like this scene. So they spot mm-hmm. an opposing German group, and everyone's got guns pointed at each other. Conrad Superior says, no, no, don't shoot them. If either side of the trenches hears you know, any, any shot of gunfire, we're just going to get gun, gunned down by both sides. That's right. And the Germans realize this as well. So everyone puts down their guns, you know, takes out a bladed weapon of some sort, mm-hmm. be it sword or knife, very quietly approach each other and just start fighting. See, this is why those <laughs> bladed weapons are important. So this scene was probably the, my favorite part of the movie. Mm-hmm. I felt like it would have been even better if the whole movie didn't have knife fights in it. Like if this was the only one, it would have really, as it is, it stands out already. So it was really good. The Germans were really scary. The reason why they were fighting with knives made sense. I like that it was dark. It was all really good. This whole, well, actually, this whole World okay. War One bit was really good. But my issue with it was I was like, wh- how does this relate to the rest of the story? It does later and we'll get to it. But, but at the time, so, I was like, we're just following Conrad. Uh, well, I mean, he's still a main character in this movie. And so it's important to find out what happened to him. Also, I think you need to at least have the one blade fight with Shola to show off that, you know, OK, he got, kind of knows what he's doing. That's true. Because otherwise you'd be like, wait, where, how does he know how to use a knife so well? That's true, because he otherwise he's just like a rich guy who ate cakes in like his castle his whole life. But on the other hand, he does have military training, so it's like does he though twice on. Well, he's in boot, goes to boot camp. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not like he went to you know the uh, the training program from uh, what was that movie? The one about the, the Age of uh, Heroes. Yeah, Age of Heroes. No, he just <laughs> went to regular boot camp. That's right. So because of that training with Shola, he is one of like three left standing at the end and his superior is in a fight with someone else and conrad's right about to get you know hit by one of the big german guys in a gas mask and his superior officer decides oh i know i need to save conrad for some reason instead of you know just roaring about himself which you know whatever so he actually uses his gun shoots the german who is about to attack conrad which then causes the aforementioned you know barrage of bullets from both sides yeah, which instantly kill him and everyone the other else besides pretty, Conrad. Yeah, it was pretty shocking. So there, you go. that's probably the closest that we get to any sort of bloodbath kind of thing, like we did in the first Kingsman. You mean like the church fight scene? Yeah, that's probably correct. Conrad crawls away and happens to find the British agent who is missing a leg. Mm-hmm. And this was actually a very interesting scene to me, where the British agent, like he's like Conrad, is visibly crying and shooken up. Mm-hmm. And the British agent, even though he's probably terminally injured, mm-hmm. is the one who's comforting him. Yeah. No, I, it was it, very touching. It was very, it worked for me. And I was just like, I was surprised by it, though. Kind of assumed Conrad would be in that mode of the stiff upper lift. Something's happened, but I'm not going to be tearing up about it kind of thing. No, I wasn't that surprised by it. It fit with the rest of the movie where his father, Oxford, is like, you don't know what it's like. You're going to be in over your head. You have no idea what you're in for. Seriously, mm-hmm. don't do it. But he, he does it anyway. The British agent gives Conrad the piece of intelligence that he was trying to get across, which is held in looks, what looks like potentially like a cigarette case, which has like a, the Totenkopf symbol on it. The animal. So he's, he says, you know, here, take this back. 
get a medal for me, basically. And he's like, no, we're both going to go and get a hero's welcome. So he like picks up the British soldier and carries him across through no man's land as the sun is rising. Yeah. You know, the, it's a very beautifully shot. Like this kind of reminded me of like 1917 with that yeah, big or, long running shot of him. Yeah. Or basically like any movie <laughs> or sorry, okay. any like war movie, not any movie. British soldiers, as well as the Germans, they give him some covering fire. He is nearly there, almost gets all the way there. And then an explosion happens behind him. He gets thrown into mm-hmm. the trench. Uh, mm-hmm. The British agent took the full br- brunt of it, so he is dead. Mm-hmm. Conrad reports it to one of the officers there, tells them that you know this man had very important intelligence. We need to get this to British command. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, okay, and the guy's okay, what's your name, son? He says, Archie Reed. Yeah. And then one of the <laughs> other Scottish sh- soldiers overhears this, isn't it? Use it, Archie Reed of the Black Watch. Mm. And I like that Conrad attempts like a Scottish, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was the only one in the theater who laughed when they, is, is, that, is that your best Scots? I think, yeah, people just thought the scene was really tense. Yeah. That's probably why they didn't react to it. Yeah. Apparently, this guy knew the real Archie Reed and has been looking for him. And he's like, and Conrad's trying to explain, no, no, it's a whole thing. I need to get this intelligence. And she mm. shows him the case, which has a Totenkopf symbol on it. And mm. as soon as the guy says, no, German spy, and shoots Conrad in the head. I was not expecting that. The thing is, I thought about it. We really should have expected it because that's what these Kingsman movies do. That happened to Colin Firth in the first one. It's true. The difference is that Colin Firth is the mentor. You expect the mentor to die. That's what they're supposed to do. Not the main character. But then I'm like, well, was Conrad really the main character? I kind of feel like his father was more the main character. It was like a dual kind of role, at least in that first half or so. All right. I would like to propose to you. Oh, boy. Time for the rewrite corner. Consider the following. Do I have to? Yes. Consider. Conrad says, Father, I am going to war. You cannot stop me. I would like your blessing, but regardless, I'm going to go. Okay. And his, his dad says, okay, look, if you're going to go, there's a spy who's bringing us intelligence in the front, in this sector. Can you get there and bring it back to us? That would really help out the Kingsman Secret Service. No. Why not? Because he has no reason to actually know any of that yet because his direct line into military intelligence is dead. Well, why not just have him come up with some other way of finding it out then? The reason why it bugs me is because this part of the movie is powered by coincidence. That Mm. Conrad just happened to be right where the intelligence was that they needed to defeat the bad guys. And I really don't like it when movies are powered by coincidence. It's a movie. Come on. Like there, you're going to have to let go of some things like that, that coincidences need to happen in movies. Otherwise, you'd have real life and real life is boring. Real life is not boring. How can you say that after all of the episodes we've covered on this show? We've covered lots of very interesting real life stories. So the second point- this kind of movie- all right. Well, the second you need point to have coincidences happen. You have to let it go, Zach. Maybe some coincidences. But the second reason why I brought it up is consider, though, everything happens the same way. But then his dad is responsible for his death. And that has real emotional resonance, too. 
he already f- feels responsible. We don't need an addi- like that. Just is adding more that we don't need. He already feels the failure because he let his son go into war. We don't need against his wife, dead wife's wishes. I don't think we need more than the disobeying the dead wife's wishes. That's enough. Well, that was the thing though. That because that didn't make sense to me. Okay, you're respecting your wife's wishes for your son not to get involved in anything dangerous, but then they take him to go kill Rasputin. I no, didn't get just that. Specifically, war. He won't. Don't let him be a soldier. Don't let him be in a war. That wasn't a war. That was helping to. He even says it. The only way I can keep my wife's wishes and keep you out of war, so that you know, war doesn't overtake all of England, is by killing Rasputin. This isn't war. It's pest control. Also, it is already his fault. Which part is his fault? Him being there is already his fault. Because if he hadn't pulled those strings with King George, he would have not been in those trenches with a black watch. Oxford hadn't pulled the strings with King George. He would have been in position somewhere else completely, probably not with the black watch right there. So he already Hmm. feels responsible. We don't need to rewrite it to make him responsible. I still like mine better, but we can agree to disagree. (laughs) Anyways, so real Archie Reed comes to the Oxford Manor and sees Shola, says he can't give his last name, but he's told that he only had a code name of Lancelot, which we didn't really talk about it as a kid, but young Conrad was had this thing about Knights of the Round Table, and he said, you know, I would be Lancelot, you would be Merlin, and my father would be King Arthur. So Shola, recognizing that lets him, that he probably knows Conrad mm-hmm. in some way, lets him to see the Duke gives the Duke a letter, and that's when the Duke finds out that Conrad is dead. And of course, it takes a toll on him. Yeah, it's very sad, very emotional. He does the Bruce Wayne thing again, where he hangs around his house and grows a beard. Just in his dressing robe, basically. Mm -hmm. Drinking lots of scotch. Who goes to get him out of his funk? But King George himself. That's right. Also, we find out that the intelligence that Conrad died to actually get is the intelligence about the Zimmerman telegram that was like definite proof. Mm. It was the proof, the real proof that uh, Wilson needed. Unfortunately, we find out that President Wilson is being blackmailed with some film of him getting seduced by Matahari. Yeah, you can call it a sex tape. That's all right. (laughs) I didn't even think about that. But yes, yeah, (laughs) it's also in this scene. When we see Wilson at, in the Oval Office, he keeps asking for more uh, statement, Statesman on the Rocks, which is the Statesman whiskey, which was you know featured heavily in the second film as the you know where the American version of the Kingsmen are in that distillery. And oh also yeah, they made, I forgot they made about a real that. whiskey, which I finally got a bottle of, and I have not tasted it yet, but I'm I'm told it's quite good. I'm sure it'll taste like whiskey, and he's. <laughs> I'm, I'm just gonna let that go and. <laughs> ignore that because otherwise i'd get to a whole thing but you don't know so the poor reason the oval office woodrow wilson is he's like speaking really fast and he's like yeah 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 yeah." i expected it to pan back and show like matahari under the table i also was waiting for that yeah didn't happen or it was maybe just implied Ooh, i like that again so here's the other thing though it's the resolute desk as okay. featured in the second National Treasure movie, there's no front to the desk, so hmm. they would see her if she was under there. Oh, well, there, there goes history knowledge getting <laughs> rid of all of our fun ideas. It's not King George who gets him out of his funk, but actually Polly. That's right. And Polly is the one who basically says, I'm resigning mm-hmm. and kisses him, which was like, wait, what? Okay. 
I mean, come on, he's Ray Fiennes. He's so hot. But then the thing is, they never bring it back. No, they don't. They don't. Which was that's why I was like, okay, that's out of nowhere. I'll give you that one criticism. Thank you. Even though I brought it up first, um, I was gonna if you hadn't. <laughs> he shaves. He does a whole lock and load montage of him just getting dressed into a fine suit. Ooh, I and like that lock and load montage. You've never I heard, heard that. that I uh, heard that before. Usually, I hear a suiting up montage. Uh, so he is in basically the classic Kingsman suit with red and blue tie, or at least mm-hmm. the not you know the early twentieth century version of it, as well as the glasses too. That was the thing he had not was not boring to that point before. Doesn't he have an umbrella? He does have the umbrella as well as a bowler hat. And so mm-hmm. he learns that he has to go to the American ambassador, like to the American embassy to see the ambassador. I think she, he's not returning their call. So he goes and pays him a visit. Yeah. And as he's there putting his hat, I, I, I wish he had thrown his hat onto the hat rack in like a reference to the old Connery bonds. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. He just places it on top. And when he does, he sees a very nice red scarf. Very similar to the one that uh, Princip had when he went to see him when they were be- he was being interrogated. He notices it, and out from the uh, ambassador's office comes Matahari. I like that they didn't spend too much time with them trying to maneuver around each other, trying to figure out what the other one knows. Yeah. So, did you know that's about a like, about like a real cashmere scarf? Is that you can fit it through a ring? No, <laughs> yeah. I do not know anything about cashmere. They have a fight, and he ends up knocking her unconscious by choking her with her own scarf. Yeah, he basically chokes her out. Though yeah. my question is, what was Matahari's plan? Just to, like, stab him to death in the middle of the embassy and then make and a break for out. it? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or kill him and then kill herself. I don't know. It was a little bit questionable, but yeah. all right. Oxford goes back to King- Kingsman to identify the scarf and where it was from. They have a whole book about cashmere or wools and bring mm. it out and say that this is only from a very specific place in one specific mountain region. This is like classic James Bond or even like Batman. I mean, <laughs> 66, it feels like. No, it's not that bad. It's I not mean, quite that egregious. Yeah, it's not like they just had that knowledge. They actually went to tailors who would literally know this sort of thing. That's true. Yeah. Oxford, Shola and Polly, who are. They're scouting out the location. There is an elevator, a very rickety elevator that is the only way up and down the mountaintop, Mm -hmm. which is like a plateau. Yeah, it looks like Masada, for those of you who have seen that. It's basically just like a mountain that's standing up in the air. With flat on top. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't James Bond infiltrate something like this Um, at some point? I mean, I think you have the Rock of Gibraltar from... uh, License to kill. There is that. There's also a scene where he has to rock climb up a mountain. And I think it was a few for your eyes only. Initially, the plan is that Oxford's going to fly a plane. They're going to use this new device called a parachute to have Shola jump off the plane mm-hmm. and then get control of the elevator and let Polly will take out anyone and they'll get up. First of all, I love action hero making his flunkies do the dangerous stuff. Um, Except. Yeah, second, they actually talk him out of it, which is cool. Uh It's not something you normally see in movies. And it reminds me of how in Mass Effect, the video game Mass Effect, you're Commander Shepard, and you have this crew of lackeys, and basically they can never talk you into changing your mind about anything. (laughs) Whereas if they argue with you, you just make a point, and they basically have to agree with you because you're the main character, and they're not. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, so like you said, he's actually convinced to 
be the one to use the parachute himself because Shola is afraid of heights and could not do it. Well, he makes a really good point where he says, I would never ask a man to do something I'm not willing to do myself. Mm -hmm. That's a principle of leadership. People like Captain Richard Winters of Easy Company believe that. So I liked it. Are about to carry out the plan. We have Oxford on the plane when the rope that he had used to tie the yoke up is let loose and he gets caught in one of the wings, is spinning around. This was so. I was watching this, like, obviously the close-ups with Ray Fiennes are probably like a green screen or something, but they literally mm. did have someone out on the wing of an old biplane. Yeah, like, it looked were, good. Yeah, it looked really good. Mm-hmm. So he finally is able to extricate himself. He is about to land on the plateau when he gets head-buttoned by a, a goat and ends up off course and is now stuck not too far away from the top of the mountain but enough that he's still stuck hanging by his parachute yeah this whole climbing sequence is really good i bet it would have looked great i don't know if they showed the movie in imax but it would have looked amazing I, think, I don't know i think it may have gotten pushed out of imax by either matrix or spider-man yeah, like, yeah there's so only so he, many imax screens right when he uses the knives to climb uh, again knives throughout the movie we see little origins of things from the original kingsman like the boot knife Mm-hmm. starts here because he needs to climb up the, the mountain so he sticks a knife in his boot and like protrudes and it looks exactly like you know the boot that comes at, that Colin right. Firth has more goats decide to give him a hard time <laughs> for no reason Yeah, they're bad guy goats though yeah. I do like the very end when he grabs the goat and the goat hauls him <laughs> up that was a good way to that end that one scene. climb though like as someone who has a little bit of experience in rock climbing mm-hmm He's, you know, vertical and he's having to climb up that way. Like he's vertical. He's got pushing off one wall with his feet and one wall with his arms. I'm like, that is intense. I know there, I forget what the name of that maneuver is, but it's usually not that way. It's usually you're pushing against the walls with both hands and both feet and you're shimming up, not yeah. like your hands on one and your feet on the other. <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes it's backwards where your back and arms are pushing yeah, this one and your feet. That That's normally what we see. That was like, wow, that, um, that's impressive. Well, also the part where the goat was doing it, I, was that supposed to be a joke? Because it was pretty funny. Which part? What? Well, the goat so was? like that same shaft, a yeah. goat is going down it. It goes down, yeah. like licks him to wake him up and then goes back up. It was really yeah. silly. Yeah, it's a little surreal. Uh, basically, parkours up to like the just the edge and the goat's about to knock mm. into him again, grabs onto its horns and gets pulled up. Mr. DuPont who is a part of the plot plot to keep America out of the war Mm -hmm. is coming out of the the shepherd's lair and he sees him going, runs after him, going to the elevator, gets in the fight with a giant guard at the elevator. And this is a good fight. I like this. Yeah. I mean, it's like Indiana Jones versus the mechanic. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And I think around here is when it occurred to me That this movie is done like a backdoor thing where suddenly Ray Fiennes is turned into a swashbuckling hero like Doc uh-huh. Savage or Buck <laughs> Rogers or Flash Gordon. He's, mm-hmm. he's got the sword. He's got the gun. He has all these crazy abilities like ability to rock climb, advanced technology, racial minority sidekick, woman <laughs> sidekick. Wow. I'm just oh. saying that's that's the times. That's the times. People like the Green Hornet. That, I never thought about it that way. I just thought of it as good representation of having a because by and large the kingsman movies are very white 
Yes, that's true. But I wondered if that's what they were going for, like a homage to a bygone era. Maybe of, entirely of possible. Yeah. Also, Alan Quartermain from League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Or the actual Alan Quartermain character from the books, too. That, too. Yeah. So I like how they get Shola up. Um, so basically, <laughs> what's his face? Uh, Dupont is stuck halfway down. Uh, and there's a big rock that's, you know, the counterbalance. Mm-hmm. Shola gets up onto the rope of where the counterbalance is. Polly shoots the rope and also kills everyone else on the ground. Shola sh- shoots all the way up, basically. And Dupont yeah. dies in him. You know, yeah, what uh, what a way to go! Buried in bricks. Oh, so oh yeah, that's that's right. The reason Dupont was important is because he had the actual original film, the original negative. Yes, that's right. So Polly retrieves it, and Shola, as he's flying up, kills the big giant guard. Yeah, it was in the trailer. So he goes flying yeah. up into the air and then slices the guy's head off with his sword. Yeah, both Shola and Oxford go into the barn and. F- I like how their original plan was to go get the negatives. And they're like, yeah. well, while we're here, let's go fight the main boss. I mean, if you're here, yeah. <laughs> and you have an opportunity to kill the guy in charge. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> for Shepard is all in shadow, but it's revealed that the Shepard is actually Morton. And I guess we didn't really talk about how Shepard had an, a Scottish accent. Not just a Scottish accent. He was a Scottish nationalist. That was yeah, his whole that, motivation. Yeah, right. We didn't talk that, about that. Oh, yeah, we he, briefly mentioned, I think, but I, I didn't. I don't think we. Whereas Morton spoke a very proper British accent. Right. So, what did you think of this twist villain reveal? I thought it was good. I was not entirely expecting it. I was a little surprised when Matthew Good's character died like twenty minutes in. I was like, oh, okay, maybe they just they got him because he's a good British actor. He can fit into these roles. So I was actually pretty surprised when he was here and I was amused by his Scottish accent. Doing having them separate was was like okay, mm. you know, and just seeing it with a bald head, but then seeing it coming out of Matthew Cook's mouth was like, "Oh, okay. Not bad." What did I, you I, think? I didn't like it. <laughs> Why? Well, first of all, nobody cares about Morton. Nobody exactly, even really cared about Fitz, Well, nobody cared about Fitzpatrick and he was Fitzpatrick <laughs> lackey. Kitchener whatever oh <laughs> there's a real fitzpatrick i have in my notes so kitchener oh. excuse me see yeah he was kitchener's lackey it's not like he's someone who's close to ray fine who's betrayed like you know what would have been it's- shocking if it was conrad back from the dead or wait okay. actually you know who i thought should have been the villain was mel uh, gibson two reasons for this first oh, of all boy, in the previous kingsman movies it was a flamboyant villain played by a very prominent actor samuel yeah. jackson and julianne moore yeah and also, Mel Gibson is known for playing a Scotsman <laughs> in Braveheart. Yes, but he's also pretty much persona non grata with Hollywood right now. Well, that's why he's so good for a villain. Come on, you really want... So, I, f- I feel like if we had that, though, you'd be like, wait, why are we introducing new characters? Who the hell is this? No, I wouldn't mind. Yes, I figured... I always exactly, figured he would... That's exactly what you would be doing. You'd be like, who are these new characters? We don't know. What's his motivation? He's not a new character. We've been seeing him the whole movie. We just don't know what he looks like. Yeah, I really I, was I, not I, expecting a twist villain. Yeah, well, or a surprise it, villain. I mean, it worked. It worked for me. Was, but so they have a very gentlemanly. Well, proposes a very gentlemanly duel of blades to end this, and of course, immediately breaks his word because he has a gun built into his blade. Nice guys finish last. Tries to shoot him. Uh, instead, gets Shola because Shola jumps yeah. in front of the bullet and is mm-hmm. hit in the shoulder. Oxford and 
Morton have a brilliant sword fight. I love this sword fight. I also love, I don't think I'd ever seen this, where they attached a camera to the blade. Mm-hmm. So you're watching the bl- like from the blade's perspective. Yeah, it's nice to see a sword fight and a movie that isn't a Star Wars movie. Okay, I'm gonna. You, there are so many sword fights out there that or beyond Robin Hood Star movie. Wars. <laughs> yeah, what about recently though? Um, recently, most of it has been more recently has, has been, been like more Japanese sword fighting than Western sword fighting. But this was like the full on like swords swinging right at each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, they even have speaking of Robin Hood, they have like an homage to that where they have their shadows. You see them in shadows as it's projected on the screen, which I liked. Mm-hmm. But they eventually do kill the shepherd with the help of the same goat. Uh, same goat. They have the classic scenario of yes. Oxford is holding him over the cliff, and all oh, he has yeah. to oh, do right. is let him go, and he dies. Okay. Yeah. And again, Shepard does the classic thing of if you kill me, that's murder, and that's not who you are. He does do the thing where he's like. I'm completely at your mercy. That's why it's different from all those other people you've killed for the rest of the movie. And then I wrote it down. Oxford says, I've become the man my son was going to be. And then Mm -hmm. lets him go. I was like, what does that mean? Can you help me out with this? All right. So it's not just, well, what was part of it is the taunt of you're a pacifist. Mm -hmm. Whereas despite the fact that he killed all those other people. (laughs) Yeah, he hasn't been a pacifist for at least 45 minutes. Yeah. So he's saying that his because you caused the death of my son and you took away his life, I have to become the man he would have been. And he would have killed you. <laughs> what an honor. And also he does it using the Victoria Cross. Like he he, he doesn't let him go. Yeah. He uses his son's Victoria Cross, which is given to him by King George, to cut the uh the cashmere scarf. This movie's commentary on war and violence was very confusing. <laughs> I didn't mm-hmm. understand what they were trying to say. If anything, cut to the end of the war. Victory, it says. It's not just yeah. the war ends, they declare victory. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. interesting because World War I really wasn't a victory for either side, per se. But I you did th- still have, you still had celebrations for, like in Britain and the US when the war was over. There was no winner, but there's definitely a loser, and that loser was Germany. Yeah. So King George congratulates Oxford and tells him that. Basically, you know, this would have been possible if not for you. And I like how Oxford says, you know, not just me, but many other but thousands of other men who gave their lives and fought for their country. Right. So it's like proper credit to everyone else. Just like in the imitation game coming this spring to a <laughs> podcast near you. Uh, but yes, Duke realizes the Treaty of... This is Versailles. Versailles. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Terms were too harsh and that something might be coming. So he has an idea and he purchases the Kingsman Tailor Shop, which he uses as a front for his new spy organization. And we see various people who are from the movie Shoal and Polly and Archie Reed, the U.S. Ambassador Chester King, mm-hmm. as well as King George. Well, they are the king's men. It makes yeah, sense. So, but, but he's not in charge. Well, that's why it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's why I was that's why I was like, and everyone gets a code name from King Arthur's legends, mm. and that's what how we started off. Um, you know, with all those code names in, mm. in we see later on in the first Kingsman movie, and yeah. they all have a drink to the Kingsman. Well, they give Merlin a place of prominence. Yeah. Merlin. I wondered if that's because Mark Strong's Merlin died, and two. 
And he was well, such a beloved character. I don't know. I mean, they made him the quartermaster, which makes sense. Okay. Which is what Mark Strong was. Okay, so a couple of thoughts about... Oh, oh. Yes. Oh, you didn't stay, did you? Nope, I never do. <laughs> but I did hear about what the uh, after right, credits. So there is an after credit sequence or mid credit sequence where Hannison is now the new shepherd and introduces Lenin to a young Adolf Hitler. What a move! So, so <laughs> if this movie, if these movies continue, the director Matthew, Matthew Vaughn. Vaughn has said he'd like to. He'd also like to do it in a similar way that they did the uh, the uh, reboot X Men movies, where they sort of skip a few decades every so often. So. This would probably, if they did another one, it'd be set probably during World War II. And I know he wants, it would love to do one in the 60s. Yeah, even though I didn't like this movie that much, I would be curious to know what a World War II one would look like. So getting back to the final scene, I had a couple of thoughts. I think it's interesting how the Kingsman's organization is supposed to prevent war and Mm -hmm. save lives. But they spend most of the movie trying to get the USA to join the war. And I understand their logic that the sooner it ends, the more lives are saved. Like Mm -hmm. that's been true for a while, but I thought it would have been interesting if the Kingsman was more expressly pro British. Mm. So like if they were like, if America joins, it'll save British lives. It'll cost America. There was, there was a degree to that where they, that's that was part of their motivation for why they didn't want Russia out of the war. Because if you know, Germany wasn't pressed on two fronts, Mm-hmm. Then they would focus on the on the eastern front, western front, excuse me, and yeah. then Britain would be overrun. So there and is Britain a would lose the war. Yeah, yeah. So that was one thing, and then the other one was that just when they say they're above politicians, as I already mentioned, they're above accountability. This mm-hmm. one was much more, I think, because history we know the way it's supposed to go. So the yeah. Kingsmen are just directing history onto the proper course. Yeah, it's just an interesting contrast from the other two where. Mm-hmm. As I said, they fight glamorous supervillains who want to take over the world mm-hmm. and not interfere with world events. They're two very different things. I mean, I would consider someone who is going to kill the entire population besides anyone who who has had safely had a microchip in his head as mm-hmm. a world event. Just I mean, one sh- that didn't happen in the real world. Right. It didn't happen in history. So... Well, what do you think if it was turned into like an alternative history thing where they like try to kill Robert Oppenheimer before he can build the atomic bomb as well as stop Adolf Hitler before he starts the war? Uh, I mean, it would be interesting. I don't know. I mean, that goes into like uh, Inglorious Bastards territory where it's like, all right, mm-hmm. you know, okay, you've killed Hitler and, and what is now the future of this world? But it has to lead up to the first Kingsman where at least as we know when we're watching or as we think when we're watching that history up to that point has covered the same ground as we have. That's true. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of the darker side of this idea about them not having accountability that they just sort of do whatever they want. And especially to quote the first Kingsman, this ain't that kind of movie, bruv. Well, maybe it's time for the movies to evolve. I think not every movie needs to be what you think it does. Zach. I know. I expect so much. Maybe it's unfair. Oh, you just expect something different than what you you're going to get, and yeah. you just need to accept what is given to you. That all this movie is is just stuff blowing up and cool knife fights. Literally, what were you <laughs> expecting? Yeah, it's a Kingsman movie, and that's that's what we are here for. All right, ready for some fact versus fiction? Sure. Yeah. Like, I'm very curious because I like when I was watching, I, like I. I know a little bit about World War One history, but not a lot. Like the whole thing with the uh, Prince killing him on the street corner. I was like, 
is that really what ha- I didn't? I so I didn't actually know that. So there's a lot. So in order to keep things in a reasonable amount of time, I focused okay. on three things. Okay. So first is there's a part where Conrad receives a white feather. Oh yes. And according to Wikipedia, white feather has been used as a symbol of cowardice since the 18th century. Are you familiar oh. with this? No. Well, I mean, other than what was told in the movie, that's about it. Yeah. No. At the start of World War I, Admiral Charles Fitzgerald, that's who I was thinking of when oh, I said Fitzgerald, not Kirkpatrick or whatever. Kitzner. Thank you. Founded the Order of the White Feather with the support of the prominent author Mary Augusta Ward. The organization aimed to shame men into enlisting in the British Army by persuading women to present them with a white feather if they were not in uniform. Huh. So it was like almost a women's organization. Interesting. In Britain, it was most prominent and started to cause problems for the government when public servants and men in essential occupations started getting them. <laughs> oh. This prompted right. Home Secretary Reginald McKenna to issue employees with lapel badges reading King and Country to indicate huh. they were serving the war effort. Interesting. Likewise, the Silver War badge was given to service personnel who had been discharged by wounds or sickness. Was first issued in September 1916 to prevent veterans from being given a hard time because they weren't in uniform. Mm-hmm. The campaign was not popular among soldiers because it also happened to soldiers who were home on leave. Right. Yeah. They're not going to be wearing a uniform the entire time they're on leave or at all, really. Yeah. One example was Private Ernest Atkins, who was on leave from the Western Front, riding a tram when a girl gave him a white feather. He smacked her across the face with his Ooh. paybook. It was a different time and said, certainly I'll take your feather back. I'm in civvies because people think my uniform might be lousy, but if I had it on, it wouldn't be half as lousy as you. (laughs) Wow. Another story is a woman who confronted a young man in a London park demanded to know why he was not in the army because I am a German. He replied, (laughs) she gave him a white feather anyway. Uh... And perhaps the most misplaced use of a feather was when one was presented to seaman George Sampson, who was wearing civilian clothes because he was on his way to a public reception in his honor. He had been awarded the Victoria Cross. Oh, no. (laughs) So this goes to show don't judge a book by its cover. All right. So next I have Rasputin's death. Sources are all that's interesting in crack.com. Okay. The principal assassins were not... The King's Men, but True. Prince Felix Yusupov, Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, and Deputy of the Duma Vladimir Perishchikov. So Felix was was supposedly, you know, in their world, Conrad's cousin. So he was there. That's interesting. He was involved. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of myths about Rasputin's death. Like, right. The myth is that he was poisoned and then he was stabbed and then he was shot and then he was thrown in a river and then drowned. Mm-hmm. Okay. For one thing, Rasputin reportedly disliked sugary foods and tried to avoid eating them. Okay. Yusupov described shooting Rasputin once in the chest, and then there's a gap, and then he jumped to life, (laughs) escaped the basement, and then they fired four more shots at him as they ran after him. However, a nearby policeman described hearing five shots quickly. Uh, That's different. Okay. Then the autopsy report found no evidence of poison, but they did Aww. find Rasputin had been shot twice in the chest at close range okay. and then execution to the forehead. Uh-huh. And then later in life, Yusupov juiced the story by saying, oh, uh, there was ice under his fingernails, water in his lungs. The autopsy uh, doesn't have any of that. Okay. That's a little disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> well, the myth survives because he's uh, such a mythological guy. And then finally, 
Wikipedia is the source. Again, the Zimmerman telegram right. was part of an effort carried out by Germans to postpone the transport of supplies and other war materials from the U.S. to the Allies. Mm-hmm. The main purpose was to make the Mexican government declare war. So, yes, they were that dumb. The German high command believed it could defeat the British and the French. Remember that the French were in World War One Because the yep. movie didn't. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> so they believed that they could do that before American forces could be trained and sent to Europe in sufficient numbers to actually help. The Germans were encouraged by their success because the U.S. invaded Veracruz in 1914 and failed to capture Pancho Villa in 1916. So the U.S. had... It's not like now where if the U.S. got into a war with Mexico, I don't think it would last too long. Mexico was able to put up a pretty significant challenge Mm -hmm. to the U.S. But, of course, it was intercepted, and that led to the U.S. joining the war. So do you know what kind of cipher it was? Or if it was a cipher or a code? Uh, No, I do not know. Because in the movie, it looked like he was using a ciphered wheel. Yes, he was. That's right. But looking at the on Wikipedia, they have you know, a portion of the telegram as it was descripted. Mm-hmm. It looks like a strictly a number based one. All right. So it looks like there's a German code book. So I couldn't. It's not. I mean, it's possible it could have been decrypted. But so uh, I'm not finding anything too much on Wikipedia. This would be something to ask our friends at the spy museum. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious what they have to say about it. Yeah. Because this is such something like, I'm trying to think, there's not too much in World War One in the current spy museum. There was a little, very little in the, in the first location as well. So obviously there's spies in World War One because we have Sergeant Stubby. We had Mata Hari too. That's that where too, I thought yes. you were going with that. No, She's at the spy no. museum. Yes. <laughs> I think the only thing that I caught was that when they showed Sar Nicholas and his family being killed, mm-hmm. it's by a photographer. And if you have a good eye, you'll notice that the photographer is actually the same actor as Adolf Hitler. So it's implying that Adolf Hitler killed the Russian Tsar. Killed the Romanovs. Yeah. That's different. It's a little bit of an alternate history kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. All right. Shall we go to favorite quotes? Yeah, I can go first. One of the one quotes that jumped out to me was, it's not fighting, it's dying said by Oxford. And then later when he says to Cholo, you'd take a bullet for me, but you wouldn't jump out of an airplane. (laughs) Let's see. So what I've got is I liked how apparently the uh, motto of Kingsman evolved from, you know, we're Oxford's not rogues Mm -hmm. into Oxford's not brogues. (laughs) I also like from Oxford, he says, our enemies think we are gentlemen, but reputation is what people think of you. Characters you are. Yeah, they didn't have the whole like manners maketh men thing. It they was in the movie once, yeah. but it wasn't and, uh, as that's given. An interesting. In, yeah. Well, because yeah. I mean, this is yeah. It was interesting because it was. It's not Oxford who says it. It's actually the shepherd. He's like, mm, I'm going to steal that. Right. I'm going to kill him and then steal his line. Also, Rasputin just had a lot of great lines. Are you waiters or Englishmen? Whatever you are, get me a drink. Yeah, that was in the trailers, <laughs> yeah, but still good. <laughs> Oxford has his had his speech about how his you know, his ancestors were like not you know noble men. They were you right. know they were robbers and killers. And oh, here we go. It's it's uh, yeah. Throughout time, our people robbed, lied, and killed until one day we found ourselves noble men. But mm-hmm. that nobility never came from chivalry. It came from being tough and ruthless. That was a theme I would have liked to. Have a little bit unpacked a little bit more, but all right, here we go. Time for our ratings. 
a scale of one to 10 martinis, one being the Avengers 1997, 10 being even better than No Time to Die if you're Lance. <laughs> How would we rate The King's Man? Zach, why don't you go first? I didn't like this movie that much. I, I thought you, the first you don't half. Say. <laughs> yeah, I thought the first half was really pretty dull. Our main characters kind of hung around and waited for stuff to happen without them. It did definitely pick up after Rasputin's fight and death. Conrad, I thought, was really dull. What is it with Kingsman movies and boring white male protagonists? You're saying Eggsy's dull? Yeah. Well, Eggsy's okay, but he's the worst part of the original movies. (laughs) Okay. He's definitely the dullest character. I like that the villain was a Scottish nationalist, but it just wasn't... It just didn't do it for me. But the, all the historical stuff does bump it up half a rating, so I will give it three and a half martinis. Ouch. Wow. All right. I'm going to go completely the other way with you because mm. I really enjoyed this. I came in with moderate to you know low expectations just because I feel like we've been waiting for forever for this movie to come out. I think it was a full two and a half years after it was originally scheduled to be released. Mm-hmm. I love the first two. Like I also like the second one, contrary to you know most people's beliefs. But I really love the first one, and I knew going in that this was going to be different because it's completely different time. But I like this time period. I like the World War One time period, and I loved all of the blade work. The sword fighting was brilliantly done. I liked there's they actually address all right. Where do we get all this intelligence from? because you don't know how they get all their intelligence in the first two Kingsman movie. They just happen to get intelligence. <laughs> I liked all the historical stuff, so I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10, because I just really enjoyed it, and I really, I'm really, i really sad that this was released when it was, because Omicron rising again, so a lot of people, rightfully so, are not going into theaters. I me and my five people in my theaters, which is part of the reason why I actually went, because if it was a full theater, I would not want to go right now. It's going to be tough to get a sequel. As I said, although I didn't like the movie that much, I would be curious and would go see another one to see what they can do with it. From what I've heard, they are already were planning this and the third uh, regular Kingsman movie back to back. And I think that is still the plan that is supposed. Well, currently, the plan is to shoot it in the fall of 2022 for the third Kingsman movie. And I hope that if that one goes is successful, and they're like, all right, we, you know, we need to make more Kingsman movies. They'll say, oh, yeah, that's right. We had this. And, you know, it was a pandemic. Sure. That's why it didn't do so well. Because <laughs> there's a lot of other movies you know, released during the pandemic, you know, that are not Spider-Man. Don't get me wrong. I really enjoyed Spider-Man, but that's not this what this re- review is about. But there's so many other movies that are not getting the numbers that uh, No Way Home did, <laughs> including this one. Yeah, You can't judge it on the same scale. No, so it's just I've, I really it's really unfortunate that it had to go through what it did to get released, especially right when Omicron is rising. There's your uh, Kingsman three Omicron rising. They finally enemy can't just punch in the face. <sighs> but yeah, so eight out of 10. I, I really enjoyed it. And I want to see more from this era as well as the main Kingsman movies. So thanks for tuning in, folks. Next week, we are doing Charlie Wilson's War starring Tom Hanks. A very enjoyable movie that we think you're going to like. Yeah, very different from this one, but also pretty well. You know, let, let's see. Let's uh, hold off what we think of it until uh, the episode comes out. But thank you, as always, for joining us. You can find us on social media at the Spy Fi Guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
And until next time, I've been Christian. And I'm Zach. And we are the SpyFi Guys, signing off. Thank you for listening to the SpyFi Guys. If you enjoyed our podcast, please be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. The theme song from this podcast is Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod from Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Films, books, and television shows reviewed by our podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a personal podcast. Any views, statements, or opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the participants. They do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the participants may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated. Any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual. You can find our podcast on social media at The Spy Fi Guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.